economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith and economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith and Economics Podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to the show. I'm Luke Graham, producer and graduate assistant for the Gorney Institute. With us, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gorney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gorney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, graduate assistant-elect, Lawson Medlin. Okay, well, somewhat against my better judgment, we're going to talk about the Fed. <laughs> it's a topic I enjoy. I think we're going to try to frame things for you on what's going on with the Fed. What, how do they actually attempt to control inflation? You've heard that they're doing some restrictive policy, and um, it turns out that the Fed's toolbox has changed um, since the financial crisis. And it's been a significant change and has... Um, definitely impacted the way the Fed does business and uh, the impact of uh, some of their policies plays out a little differently. And there's really some uh, a little known secret that I'm not sure uh, the general public would like if they kind of knew what was going on. And I, I suspect they don't, because when I first learned it, I was like, that that doesn't seem right. So Peter, why don't you lead us off here on, on talking about these Fed policies? Sure. So I think probably the best, excuse me, the best place to start is at kind of ground zero here uh, and assume our listeners don't really know much about how the Federal Reserve works. And we're not going to go through all the details. And maybe uh, the independence of the Fed as, as far as ground zero. I think yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I, I think I'll let you take it away on independence because <laughs> I, right, I was, I was about to go into something else. But um, <laughs> yeah, you can come back around. To OK, it. sure. Um, my kind of first thought was we had Jim on the podcast, Jim Gortney, a few weeks ago. And listeners, you can listen to that. But I actually recommend listening to this podcast first because uh, Jim started off at kind of like a <clears throat> 201 level. I kind of want to go more to a 101 level about. Yeah. how the Fed actually increases the money supply. Yeah. And so uh, there's kind of a, a few different ways, but the, the primary or the most direct way the Federal Reserve increases the money supply is through something called open market purchases. And so here's how it works. Banks have some financial assets called securities. Uh, there are different types of securities, but one type that the banks love to hold are treasury bonds. And basically these treasury bonds are IOUs from the government. And so the bank will buy uh, this thing that says the government is going to pay you X amount of dollars in 10 years, and you purchased it for less than X amount of dollars. And so it's kind of this slow kind of, it's not a high interest rate, not high return, but it's considered very low risk. That's why banks love them is unless the federal or the federal governments rather uh, defaults on its debt, which uh, if it does happen, we'll be a long way off from and we'll have bigger things to worry about if we do. Um, then this is for sure going to get paid back. So it's relatively risk-free. And the other nice thing about treasury bonds is because of this risk, risk-free risk aspects, they're very liquid. In other words, there's always people who want to buy them. And so banks love them for those two reasons. It's relatively, uh, relatively risk-free security, and it's also very liquid. And so banks hold these you know, in great quantity and millions of dollars. And when the Federal Reserve wants to create money, they don't just print a bunch of money and then throw it out of a helicopter, even though that maybe like would be nicer. I, I'd actually prefer that because then maybe I'd be able to get some. <laughs> but instead, uh, what they do is they buy securities from these banks holdings. 
And so they purchase a, a bunch of these treasury bonds from banks who already have them. And the way they do this is not like you and I do it. The way they do it is they print the money. And so this is how newly printed money, uh, new money enters our system generally. It's the Federal Reserve creates a bunch of it and they use it to purchase it from banks. And so it enters banks. And then given, you know, banks want to, uh, they do what banks do with money, which is they lend it out. Uh, so people, businesses will come and seek loans and they will, uh, you know, lend out this new money that they have. And they'll even be more willing to lend it because they had more money than they have more money than they did before they sold those bonds to the treasury. Uh, and so it kind of trickles into the system. It's used by the people who get the loan. And then, you know, it goes to secondary recipients and tertiary recipients and kind of trickles through the system. Okay, let me uh, fill in a couple things from just responding from what you said that um, why is the government issuing bonds? It's because of the deficits that they create. They spend more money than they collect in taxes and therefore have to borrow. So it's no big secret that the national debt, I think Jim mentioned this too, is up to about 30 trillion. And that debt grows every year because the government spends more money than they collect in taxes. And so how do they pay for the, that type of spending? They issue these government bonds, treasury notes, and um, as Peter was explaining, um, a, whole, a large holder of these types of financial instruments are the banks themselves. And so that is how it can be used. But anybody from around the world can buy these things. So historically, China has been a large holder of our government bonds as well. So it's definitely a global market. And as Peter explained, the the United States is pretty rock solid on, on uh, being a relatively risk-free asset. Obviously, they've dememonstrated a little risk here with inflation, <laughs> uh, yep, letting that true. go to where it is. So there's a little bit of an inflation that, risk. That's, that's a good point. Um, so, but other than that, uh, that's out there. The only other thing I wanted to mention before we, Justin's got a comment um, is the money supply. So the money supply in the United States, when we say the quantity of money, what we're referring to is the currency out in circulation, which is good old hard cash, plus any checking account deposit. So if you currently have $2,436 in your checking account, that is part of the nation's money supply. So is your savings account balance. So if you add up all of those things, um, it was around 15 trillion. I guess I haven't looked at it lately. That's what I was going to Google, but the, that's the nation's money supply. I think it's actually a little higher than that. That might be an old figure, um, but that's the money supply. That's what the Fed is, is manipulating through these open market purchases, buying those bonds from a bank and replacing it with a checking deposit increases the money supply through that money ultimately being loaned out as Peter explained. Yeah. So uh, Justin, you had some. So uh, do I have it right that, um, you know, banks hold risky assets in terms of, you know, banks will make loans like business loans. Sure. And the, one of the ways they offset that risk is by holding these very secure assets. Yes. That are the bonds. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and the reason they hold those bonds instead of holding cash is because you can buy uh, a bond that will be worth more in the future than that cash would be if you just held it. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, you can think of it this way, listeners, that uh, you, we've got our three assets. So let's let's keep it to three. Justin's right. We've got the risky high return loans. We've got bonds, which are low risk, but also earn interest. And then we have currency, uh, cash. You know, this is the bank's, uh, you know, cat vault cash, for example, this the money they keep on hands. The only benefit to banks of holding dollars 
is that way when their customers come and request money from their bank account, then they can give them the dollars. That's the only reason banks want dollars because the dollars themselves don't make the money. In fact, dollars tend to lose money over time because of inflation, right? Uh, whereas, you know, bonds compared to inflation, they're losing money, uh, but they're losing less money than dollars are right now. Uh, and loans, you know, they like the loans, but they're very risky. And so these are kind of the three different parts of what, you know, the banks will hold. But this actually isn't quite the end of our story either. And in order to understand, you know, how this, for example, if the Federal Reserve buys, even though this is ridiculously low number, we'll use it, for example, $100 of bonds, it doesn't just increase the money supply by $100. Uh, that's the start of it. But in our system, we have a banking system called fractional reserve banking, which means that when banks receive your money, if you deposit $100 in the bank, it very likely will not in full stay in the bank. Uh, it's very uncommon that you know a full deposit would stay in the bank. Banks lend out part of what you deposit. And now think of it this way. If you get $1,000 and you put it in your bank and that bank lends out the money, do you lose that money? Does it go out of your bank account? No, I mean, for all intents and purposes, you still have that money. You still consider it to be money there. It's satisfying your demands to have cash. And so it's still acting as money, but it's also being lent out to someone else who is getting that money for different projects. And so if the federal, or if banks uh, keep $20 of $100 that you put in and they lend out the other 80, they've effectively increased the money supply by $80. But it doesn't end there either because that person who gets the $80 also uses a bank, whether it's the same bank or a different bank, it doesn't matter. And they deposit that money in a bank. Well, the bank can do the exact same thing where they can loan out part of that $80. And so, you know, you can actually do math and figure out how big this is gonna be by the end. Uh, but this is generally how the money supply increases and Federal Reserve can impact this process as well. Yeah, so the, the money multiplier, I believe, is uh, about two when they take into account currency drains so that a, an injection by the Fed of $1,000 ultimately turns into $2,000, if I'm remembering correctly. And listeners, we just did a quick Google. I was thinking back to 2020, pre-COVID was about 15 trillion. And now uh, Peter pulled it up and what were we at? 21 and a half. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's running a little under what our current GDP. So the income, the nation of the income is running around 23 trillion. And so um, money, the money floating around the system, so to speak, to facilitate transactions and other things is is near that. Yeah. And, and but listeners, if you're curious, that is mostly due, uh, or at least significantly due to open market operations. As Jim points out in the podcast we had a few weeks ago, if you look at the amounts that the treasury or that the Fed has purchased in terms of those treasury bonds and the amount of another asset they've purchased, which they've recently gotten into called mortgage-backed securities, uh, the amount of those two uh, portfolio increases basically is the amount that uh, our money supply has gone up. It's not exactly, it's not one-to-one, -one, and that doesn't mean it's the full cause, um, but it's it's pretty close. But this does bring us to, uh, you know, kind of one of the reasons I wanted to, to talk about this today is this in a way, and it's actually correct to some extent to say this in a way is sort of an old paradigm uh, for thinking about monetary policy. Uh, monetary policy in 2008 changed pretty significantly significantly to where if you read like a, a Ron Paul and the Fed book or something today, it actually is a little bit outdated. Uh, it's not outdated in the sense that it's completely wrong, but it's outdated in the sense that uh, you shouldn't talk about monetary policy the same way you did, uh, you know, when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, 
And the reason goes back to this fractional reserve system. And so the Federal Reserve can influence the extent to which banks are willing to lend out money. Historically, one of the ways that they had control over how much banks lended out money was by setting reserve requirements. And so, you know, we talked about how, well, maybe the bank gets $90 and they lend out 80 of the dollars or something like that. Well, the Fed used to have a legal cap on the amount of a new deposit you were allowed to lend out. It would say you have to keep, for example, 10% of the total money that's deposited in your bank in reserves or in cash in the bank, which means you can't lend out 10% of it. You can only lend out the other 90%. But what kind of changed over the last few decades is uh, banks decided that they didn't want to just hold the minimum amounts. Banks have gotten a little bit less willing to lend out their total amount of reserves. And so banks pretty consistently for the last decade have held more than the required reserves. Uh, and actually, I think for the last two decades, I, I could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure. Certainly since the financial crisis. Yes. And they held on to cash to kind of protect themselves. That's right. Because, cash was king. Because again, uh, you know, <laughs> banks still do want the cash in order to be able to satisfy customers, right? And because actually the banks want access to quick purchasing power too. Uh, and cash is even still better than, than treasury bonds. And so this tool that the Federal Reserve used to use actually wouldn't work anymore, right? Uh, if you were influencing the amounts that banks were lending out by saying, well, now you legally have to keep 20%, but the banks are already holding 20% because they didn't care about your 10% rule. They wanted to hold more for their own sake. But actually you lose your ability to control the money supply that way. Uh, you can't affect the amount of loans that are given. And so the Federal Reserve has moved away from this tool. And let me, let me add the discount rate at this point because yeah. it ties into that That's right. reserve. So the old system was... Uh, you could lo loan out, let's say, 90% of your money. Well, if all of a sudden a bunch of loans went bad, like they did in 2008, then the bank could go to the Federal Reserve for a short-term loan to make themselves solvent. So you may have heard of bank runs where everybody goes to the bank at once and wants their money, like in uh, a, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, and the bank doesn't have all your money is what, we're, what we've been explaining. And so this way, uh, people could rest assured that the Fed would bail out, so to speak, or give a short-term loan and that your deposits would be protected up to the FDIC uh, maximum amount for a single account. And so that is known as the discount rate, which was another tool of the Fed that they would change yeah. the amount. And they still do today, but it's less of a player in it now. And that's indirectly, right? That they affect that? Uh, no, they said okay. that's the okay. that's actually the only rate they set direct. Well, that's well, true now. now, with now. The interest yeah, yeah. That's where we're going with this with number four. And um, yeah. I, th I think probably the what we should do now is kind of break here because this is like the, the old regime. The only thing we haven't talked about is federal funds, uh, but I, I think that we can kind of, yeah, uh, we can yeah, yeah uh, skip that for now. But I think after the break, uh, it would be a good time to talk about uh, interest on bank reserves, which, which is the new tool of the Fed, which is why the Fed is saying now, don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain and the money coming out of the printer. <laughs> uh, that doesn't matter anymore, we promise. Uh, so I so that's our teaser for you. The banks used to not be paid any interest on your money, and now they do. We'll be back in just a bit. If you're a high school student interested in earning some college credit, we have an online microeconomics class for motivated high school students seeking to earn early college credit. It's affordable, flexible, and layered with support. Our new online microeconomics course is optimized for dual credit and will increase your students' college readiness. Contact Peter or Justin or Russ today.
All right, back to our cliffhanger. So um, the Fed, due to the financial crisis, uh, came up with a new policy that increased their power. Imagine that. That's a, maybe a little bit of a side topic to yeah. this, but uh, I think it increased their power, and that might be one of the reasons they thought it was a great idea. Um, so they're, they're somehow paying money on my money. So I give my money to the bank and they give me a pittance of a, of a rate. And then the Fed gets to earn money on my money that doesn't come back to me. What's going on here, Peter? Interest on reserves. Um, <laughs> so the Federal Reserve's new policy, because the, again, the, there's a little bit of a concern. Well, now we can't affect things with reserve requirements, really. Uh, so what can we do? Well, the Federal Reserve created a system called the interest on reserve system. And how it works basically is that the Federal Reserve will pay banks not to lend out money. Like this is the, the basic you know, formula of the policy is that the Federal Reserve will pay a bank for holding some cash uh, that they don't give out in loans. And so they can change that rate. They can say, we'll pay you a 1% interest rate for holding that cash. We'll pay you a 2%, we'll pay you a 0%. And so now you can see how this is different than the reserve requirement, because regardless of the amount of money that you're holding, whether it's above the previous requirement or not, which, by the way, now we don't have reserve requirements. We've totally abolished those. But um, regardless of whatever the reserve requirement is, if someone increases the amount of money that they're paying you not to make a loan, you are going to make less loans and you're going to hold more of the money. And similarly, the Fed can choose to lower the rate. And so if they're afraid that not enough lending is going on, they can lower the interest on reserves rate, which means that banks are getting less money for just having it sit in the bank and they're sitting in the bank and they're more likely to lend it out then. Uh, there's kind of some unique features of this. Uh, first off, uh, again, just like treasury bonds, uh, interest on reserves is basically risk-free uh, and because of that, it kind of sets a floor for what banks are willing to lend at. And so if I can get, if I'm, go, go ahead. Were you gonna say no, no. If, can I ask a yes. question? So just to be clear, just, the interest on reserves is interest that the Fed pays to banks on currency they hold. Just currency, not uh, the bonds or anything else. Yes, right? that's right. There, there's one yeah. other aspect is the deposits at the Fed. So that's currency that they're holding in their bank vault. Right, which is actually a smaller fraction usually yeah. than the amount they have deposited with the Fed. So the old saying was when they when they when the Fed was invented was we're going to be the banker's bank. So you can kind of listeners, you can kind of think about banks banking money with the Fed, and so it's that money plus though the currency that's sitting yeah. in, in their vault, which is the day to day servicing of people coming in to do withdrawals and whatnot. Uh, yes, that is what they're getting paid interest on. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. And and thank you, Russ. I actually wasn't sure which part or what uh, percentage we put the deposits were. Uh, I had never known the breakdown of like how much banks hold versus how much they put at the Fed. So I'm yeah, like, I, I I always I don't assume know it, I don't know it perfectly, but yeah, they just keep enough on hand to service. And, yeah. And that was one of the things I tried investigating early on was if they were getting money on the cash in their vault. And mm -hmm. at the time when I did the research, that's what I found was that it's on all the it's what's there. Yeah. Um, yeah, they used to have two the separate amount of money rates, they're not loaning on one rate. So yeah, yeah. And but so, so just to be clear, then instead of setting a requirement for how much currency mm -hmm. banks have to have in their vaults or in their deposits with the Fed, now instead the Fed can slightly increase the incentives for banks. Yes, that's right. Yeah, okay. that, it's it's a more uh, roundabout way of influencing how much people hold, uh, but it's a more effective way. Let me, let me not. Give, 
a quick example too, just to highlight. So suppose a bank has $100 million in deposits and they've got 80 million of it loaned out. That's how they make money, right? They're paying you your pittance of interest out the door and then they charge 5%, 6%, 7% to borrowers. So they got 80 million of that money and then 20 million is left hold held back and they're choosing that level according to the incentives like Justin said on the interest rate that they're being paid on those reserves. In the past if it was a 20% re reserve requirement then they got zero on the 20 million that they were forced to hold back and mm -hmm. only money on that was lended out. Yes. And so that's been kind of the dramatic change. Uh, and so, yes, as they lower the interest rate on reserves, that gives more incentive for the bank to find another borrower, uh, to find a, a, somebody who wants to borrow money. And as they raise that interest rate, then they don't lend as much money out. Yeah, and that, that's a great example. And I was going to go from another example from the, the lender's perspective of why this kind of sets that minimum bar is now if I want to go to the bank and I say, hey, listen, I want to take out a loan. I'm going to start a business. I promise you in a year, I'm going to pay you back this with 3% interest. I'll pay you back whatever my loan amount with 3% interest. The bank's going to say, there's no way on earth because currently, if you want to look it up, the, the interest on reserves rate is 3.5%. So the Fed can make, sorry, my bank can make absolutely no risk 3.5% unless, again, the Federal Reserve goes under, uh, which the Federal Reserve is a lot less likely to go under than my individual businesses. Justin's crossing his fingers over here. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it, it's relatively risk-free. So there's no loans going to be going out of the bank that are less than this rate because if your bank can make something risk-free from the Fed or make a risky loan to you, they're going to make the risk-free free, risk one to the Fed. And so I have to promise at least like 4% maybe or 5%, something that's going to offset the risk that I bring to the table to convince my bank that I'm someone who's worth lending to. And so it's going to push the interest rate up. And so the higher the Federal Reserve sets that interest on reserve rate, the higher that the, the reserve, or excuse me, the interest rate on loans will be. So it's a more direct way of controlling the interest rates on loans. It seems more like a barrier to the consumers as well. Well, it, it can be, but if they lower it, it's less of a barrier, right? And yeah. so the, the point is that, you know, if at a moment in time we have that 5% interest rate and then all of a sudden the Federal Reserve says, well, you know what, uh, let's just make it 0% actually, then banks are going to, you know, start doing a crazy amount of lending because they've lost all their interest that they're earning. And 0% effectively was what it yes. was before. Right? Yeah. So uh, now the as far as what Peter's talking about, the risk premium of, do I want to loan out to this entrepreneur or not? Well, he's got some risk with them. It's really whatever risk premium you're adding on to that. It used to be zero, and I want to make 5% on this guy because I think it just, that's what justifies the risk. Now I used to get uh, 3%. That changes that calculus a little bit in terms mm -hmm. of how much uh, lending uh, is going to go on. Yeah, so I think this brings us to it. This is why people say the old system is dead. Uh, the and. For example, if you go to the FRED website, and this is true, uh, the St. Louis Federal Reserve website is called FRED. If you go to the FRED website, they have like resources for teachers. And they talk about how you really shouldn't talk about open market purchases anymore because they don't matter that much. <laughs> and here's the reasoning. The thought is this, is that banks no longer, and this is true, this aspect's true, banks no longer lend out as much as possible. That doesn't happen anymore. And interest on reserves guarantees basically that uh, we're, we don't, we're never going to be able to back out like a perfect like money multiplier of what Russ talked about before is, you know, you're not going to know exactly before the beforehand how much, you know, banks are going to lend out. And so for this reason, uh, when an open market purchase comes in, or what, in other words, when the Federal Reserve buys those treasury bonds from the bank we talked about earlier, 
What happens a lot of time, because banks are getting interest on reserves and because they no longer hold to minimum requirements, uh, is that that new money doesn't actually ever enter the system because banks hold on to it. And so the, the Federal Reserve would be very nuanced here. They would say, when we do an open market purchase, we create currency, but we don't create money because we've added dollars to the bank, but the bank is never actually lending out those dollars or they're doing so at a very small amount. And if it never enters the system, well, then people aren't using it on things. It's not being lended out. It's not being used to purchase things. It's not going to affect, affect like the rate of inflation. Uh, if it's not being considered for loans, it's not going to affect the interest rate either. Uh, this used to be how the Federal Reserve influenced the interest rate was open market sales and purchases, but no longer uh, because we've got the interest on reserves. And, and so they'll argue that this no longer matters, that open market purchases are less important than they used to be. Um, one thing I want to bring up, the interest rate on reserves is the lowest rate in the nation. It's really what everything else gets benched off of. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about raising it, I guess bear in mind, listeners, that this is the rock bottom lowest interest rate that right. they essentially establish. And then above that is the discount rate, which was the loan if they're in trouble. And the other part I wanted to bring up was there's other tools in place. So there is required reserves. It's just more discretionary. And if a bank is getting in trouble and they're not passing what they call stress tests, then the Fed will intervene and say, sorry, uh, you're going to have to keep more money in reserves because you're in trouble. Uh, so they will they will start to manage the bank a little bit more if they're in trouble. Otherwise, it's kind of just free flowing as we've been explaining. Yeah. But I, I didn't want to make it look like they can do whatever they want and loan out all their money 100%. They actually can't because then they wouldn't be passing these stress tests. Sure. Yeah. And uh, so there is a, there, there's just different Not concrete, mechanisms yeah. now. Yeah. Okay. Justin, let me ask you another question uh, just to try to simplify it. So uh, when, when I put my money in the bank and I get interest on my deposits, right? Mm -hmm. I know where that interest is coming from. It's because the bank is making money off its riskier loans that it's making uh, to businesses, ideally, right? In this Mickey Mouse example. So, yeah. Right? Yes. Continue. Where is the money coming from that the Fed is paying uh, the <laughs> banks? There's kind of two different possibilities here. Okay. Possibility one is that it comes from the money they're making off their securities, but we should highlight that they only make money off their securities because of possibility two, which is open market purchases. And so all essentially all the money that the Federal Reserve is able to give out, it is able to give out because it does the printing in the first place. Yeah. Uh, and the only reason why I didn't say yes to your first example is now I would expect that interest on reserves actually would affect uh, the interest people get on their savings and checking accounts, at least some amount, probably not a direct uh, translation, which I know is one of the things for us hates, uh, is that the banks are making a guaranteed interest rate and it uh, doesn't appear, appear to be trickling down, though. Uh, savings account interest rates have gone up. Uh, U.S. banks trying to throw CDs at me, which I still laugh at the interest rates because they're crazy low, but Yes, yeah, so um, I, I just meant in a Mickey Mouse example of a bank. Yes, yeah, 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 that it, yeah the, the that, the that's right. Interest would that's, that's right. I but, think another clarifying thing that you opened the door on was the Fed's balance sheet. So listeners, um, the Fed is holding these government bonds, same as China, same as maybe some of you in your retirement funds. So the government asset, the treasury bond or the government bond, whatever of whatever denomination it is, is held by anybody. Well, one of those anybody's is the Federal Reserve, which brings up this idea of the independence of the Fed. Uh, 
the Federal Reserve operates independently of Congress and the president in theory. Now, Peter's going to bring up some conspiracy stuff, and, and I'm not so sure he's not right, or, or maybe it's non-conspiracy stuff. The true history of political the Federal Reserve. Political pressure <laughs> and public choice, fun stuff that we've talked about in other episodes, which I don't disagree just, with, by the way. Listeners, you could just Google Richard Nixon <laughs> and then recognize that every president does exactly what Nixon does. So, like he's just not the one who didn't get away with it. In theory, and I believe for the most part, it operates this way. Uh, the Fed does not have to answer to the president if President Trump or Biden is putting pressure on, hey, I think you should not raise the interest rates That's quite true. as much. They don't have they are not that Jerome Powell does not have the president as his boss. It's not structured that way. So uh the Fed operates unless the president gets reelected. Well and then they get fired. And then they get fired. <laughs> yeah, but that's a little at least in the moment. You're right. Yes. In the moment, they there's, don't there's have some to, insulation. Yeah, they don't have to follow something that the president is doing they they really truly can change these policies without approval of congress or approval of the that's president right. that's right and so that is what's known as the independence of the central bank and this is true of most developing countries have some there's varying degrees of independence depending on how they're set up um but that is the one thing that i've hung my hat on in the past that i'm hanging less on now today with the problems that we're having is this this independence of the fed but that's why the Federal Reserve can hold the government bonds as part of their asset base. And then they can sell those bonds that they're holding or buy new ones in their inventory. And literally, the fiscal arm of the government, the president and Congress, owe the Federal Reserve that money. And so that's how they're making money is the bond is paying interest of whatever it was stated at the time. And the Fed makes a profit every year. So they, that's where their money comes from generally is off of their yeah. holdings of their assets, which are primarily U.S. government. Yeah. Bonds. And, and if you're wondering, like, does the Federal Reserve, like, keep all this money? Actually, no, they return it to the Treasury. Yeah. And so and the, I, I'm actually pretty sure that yeah. there's like workarounds that some people at the Federal Reserve probably have nicer lives than they should, uh, given the, <laughs> you know, the money that they get. I'm sure it filters to them somehow. Uh, through nicer offices or whatever. But regardless, uh, most of it, it does get returned to the Treasury. And so I, I think, uh, you know, th basically there's this now argument that interest on reserves is the only thing that really matters. We should stop talking about the other things. What matters is like not whether or not we've done open market purchases, but do banks have excess reserves? And if they do, well, then, you know, it doesn't matter if we make new money because it means the money's not going to go out anyways. Uh, and this is wrong. Uh, and th this is why I wanted to have this podcast uh, is it's wrong for lots of reasons. Um, first off, one of the comments that uh, sometimes is made is that if you back out the money multiplier that Russ mentioned earlier, in other words, when you put a new dollar in the banking system, how many dollars does it eventually create through the banks? For a long time there, uh, pre-COVID, it had fallen below one, like it was like 0.6 or something. In other words, if you put a new dollar in the system, mm -hmm. it only made a dollar and 60 cents. Now, this should already strike you as, well, then open market purchases do still matter, right? If you put a new dollar in the system and it becomes a dollar and 60 cents, that will drive up prices. It will increase, it do, it's increasing the supply of loanable funds, which means it does affect the interest rate because the $1 is becoming more than $1. So first off, that's all we need is that the, the multiplier or yeah, the money multiplier only needs to be greater than zero, right? It needs to not be negative, which there's no like, you'd have to have a really weird policy tool for it to never, ever not be that. So when a new dollar enters the system, it still does create more money. But the other reason it matters is interest on reserves is not like, it's not a binary. It's not you either have it and then money doesn't 
jump into the system or you don't have it and money does jump into the system, it can be lower and higher. And if you set the interest on reserve rate to 0.1%, then banks really don't care that much about the interest on reserve rate. And they're going to lend out as if you're not paying them interest on reserves. If that happens, uh, then having open market purchases, in other words, the Federal Reserve printing the money and putting it into the banking system, like we talked about earlier, is going to impact the money supply just like it did before there was no interest on reserve rate. And in fact, in March of 2020, the Federal Reserve dropped the interest on reserve rate to 0.1%. They basically got rid of it. And I have a friend who's done research on this. If you back out the money multiplier during that time at the beginning of pandemic, it was three times, Justin. Will you keep saying back out the money multiplier? Sure. What does that mean? Okay. So the money multiplier, the idea is when the Federal Reserve buys a bond from a bank and they put $100 in the yeah. system and the Federal Reserve and the banking system starts loaning that out and they loan it out a few different times. I know what the money multiplier is. What does yes. it mean to back it out? Basically, you can do math taking the M2 or the M1 money supply and dividing it by something called the monetary base. And this is gonna get, get a little bit more complex. I, Russ might be a, a better so at explaining this. Does it just this. mean calculate? Yeah, it, yeah, it just means yeah. calculate it. Oh, it means that okay. the, the Federal Reserve actually used to calculate the money multiplier for us and they no longer do that. Okay. Uh, so you, you're basically taking uh, one measure of the money supply yeah. divided by another measure of the money supply and you can get the money multiplier. Uh, and it was three times during the pandemic. And so, uh, Interest on reserves has not killed the effectiveness of open market purchases uh, or the importance of open market purchases. We've had all of one crisis since the interest on reserves regime took over. And in that one crisis, I know it's N equals one, but it's all, all of the one, uh, we've dropped the interest on reserves rate all the way down and we've engaged in open market purchases. Here's the easier argument though, knowing open market purchases still matter without knowing all the stuff about the Federal Reserve, uh, like a layman on the street should be able to think about this. If open market purchases no longer had any impact, in other words, the Fed printing money and buying bonds with it from the banking system, why did they do it in record amounts in the recession? Like, this is a really easy question. Why did we, uh, you know, print more money than we ever have in the history of our country in the recession if open market purchases don't matter anymore? Because it doesn't do anything. Right. <laughs> a, so here's the steel man argument, right? This is a, a very smart reply. Someone could say that the Federal Reserve did this because they wanted banks to have cash sitting there in their vaults in case they wanted to start using the cash later. Not today. They don't want it today. So it's not impacting the money supply today, but maybe it would later, like just in case. Uh, but still, if banks are anticipating that they might want to use money later, then actually private individuals will anticipate that banks might use money later. And as soon as there's the possibility that reserves are going to become you know, money in the system, as soon as that's possible, people will start treating the money supply as if it's larger and inflation will actually happen today and interest rates will happen today. In other words, if you know that the money supply increased and it's going to actually impact things, you are going to treat money as if it's less valuable. So it actually doesn't even matter if the Federal Reserve is like doing it for the future. People anticipate the future with their actions, at least somewhat. And so there is no way to square this idea that the Federal Reserve is printing a bunch of money, and also it doesn't matter that they're printing a bunch of money. Like these, it's it's impossible to explain this as anything other than money printing still matters. We shouldn't stop teaching it. I think it's insane that the Federal Reserve is saying that we shouldn't teach it uh, the, or de-emphasize it. Uh, this is one of the two biggest tools that any any agency in our government has, and it'd be crazy to say that we shouldn't talk about it. So the monetary base is the currency in circulation plus 
the reserves of all of the banks, which are which is the deposits held by the Fed. And so is that M1 or M2? This is M2. Okay. And so the monetary base well, what, currently what, the monetary base is not M1 or M2, right? The monetary base I'm sorry, is yeah, the most yeah. na- it's actually it's M0. It's oh, the okay. most narrow definition yeah, of yeah, money. Because it's just the reserves. It's okay. not all the deposits of that people have, but rather the reserves that the actual banks have. And the money in your wallet. And so here get, to things. get to this point, I, I Googled it. Um we're at 5.4 trillion. And we were at 21 trillion of M2. So the money supply, as we characterized it earlier, was 21 and a half trillion. The monetary base is 5.4 trillion. And Google tells me that it was 6.3 a year ago. So that's the shrinkage of the monetary base, this tightening that's been mm-hmm. going on that's reflective in the monetary base. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the thing I wanted to push back a little bit on Peter on on uh, whether uh, bond purchases are relevant anymore. Uh, the Fed used what they called Operation Twist. So if you Google that, um, it was purchasing longer term instruments instead of shorter term interest rates to try to affect long term rates. So if the Fed goes out and buys 15 year government bonds, that impacts like home mortgages more than yep. what short term stuff does. Yep. And so I think they're still too active, in my opinion. Like, I don't think those markets should be manipulated like that. It's all in good intentions, but a lot of what they did was drive down home mortgage rates through manipulating that. And now they're holding an instrument that has longer term consequences as well. So I think it's further distortions that they'll continue to do, unfortunately. So I don't think the bond purchases, the open market purchases, as we let off with this, is is irrelevant in their yeah. eyes. I think it's still going to be active as a policy tool and, and potentially, let's just say, dangerous from a pre market perspective. Yeah, no, I, and I, I don't, I don't mean to say that uh, it is irrelevant. What I'm saying is, like, if you if you look at like their guidance for teachers right now, they're saying you need to talk about open market purchases less, and the reason you need to talk sure. about them less is because they 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 become the the primary thing that we talk about with them which is expanding the money supply and affecting by the way the reason one of the reasons that the federal reserve would want to expand the money supply is that if you increase the amount of loanable funds available then people will be able to get loanable funds for a cheaper interest rate in other words if the bank is sitting on $100 they might want a lot of money to lend out that last $100 they have they're sitting on like billions of dollars of you know excess reserves going to be relatively easy. It's just like an eBay auction. If you have a lot of sellers, not a lot of buyers, you're going to have lower prices, lower interest rates. And so the comments is, well, because interest rates are now set by the interest on reserves rate, uh, then actually, you know, increasing and decreasing the money supply, uh, it doesn't matter. But it actually still does matter. What matters is not just the interest on reserves rate. What matters is the interest on reserves rate relative to the other interest rates, like the federal funds rate, things like that. And so if you set that interest on reserves rate low enough, those other uh, you know, functions of the, the Fed still are important. And that's what they do, that when there's financial crises, they'll set that interest on reserves rate low. And so those other things will still operate just like they did during the pandemic. So to say uh, that we shouldn't talk about open market purchases in classrooms because it's less important now, um, it would strike me as propaganda if I didn't think, you know, actually a little bit higher about the Fed's track record of being honest about what they're, because <laughs> uh, that's that's one thing is, you know, their education, they're usually tr- pretty transparent, but I, I really can't explain why they would be so uh, against continuing to talk about open market purchases. Yeah, I, I guess uh, to kind of start to wrap things up, 
So the four tools of the Fed in order of importance would be number one, the interest on reserves yep, now. I agree with that. Changing. Number two would be the open market purchases. I think I'd put number three and they're distant. Uh, number three, the discount rate, which is the interest rate charged to banks that are in trouble. That's less of an issue now. And then required reserves isn't functioning at all like it used right. to, but yeah, it is gone. still there. So, and that's true. That's um, gone. So yeah. that's a, if yeah. you're a teacher, uh, you can maybe mention the concepts, but I wouldn't focus too much on it because yeah. they don't do that anymore. Yeah. And so I think Milton Friedman's words still ring true today and other people that want to limit the power of the Fed. This has not been a good thing. I think it's more disruptive, yeah. creates more uncertainty by having another tool or basically turning upside down really what they what they did before. There's less clarity in the markets for uh, markets to make predictions on what they should do. So Milton Friedman was a proponent of a, of a fixed growth of the money supply or a, some sort of fixed rule as it evolved over time. And uh, that's something that Bitcoin gives us. The fixed rule of Bitcoin is that it's fixed. <laughs> and so we'll see if... Uh, the the power struggle over time as digital currencies emerge uh, starts to morph again what what currency and what money looks like in the United States and around the world. Yeah, it's the I mean at at the end of the day, what the Federal Reserve does, regardless of the tool that it uses, is it tries to convince uh, financial institutions and borrowers to do things that they wouldn't do absent the policy. Yeah. Right. The whole goal is when times are bad, let's convince people to go out and start big investment projects. So that way, you know, those yeah. those big investment projects are going to like revitalize the economy. But sometimes uh, resources are in the wrong places. Yeah. And when resources are in the wrong places, it means that those resources need to move to the right places. And sometimes that means uh, not fun times for people in the economy, because sometimes uh, people have jobs that are dependent on the resources being in the wrong places. And so it's not fun to experience market corrections, but ultimately, the Federal Reserve, whether it's through open market operations, interest on reserves, whatever they're doing, trying to avoid those corrections. Ultimately, what they're trying to do is us avoid putting resources where they should be, rather than where they shouldn't be. Yeah, it's not without good intentions. Of course. I'm not yeah. calling these people some sort of conspiracy theory, which you might hear on online or other places. Uh, they really think they can manage this stuff better than what if they left it untouched. And that's where we have differing theories on that. That is the conspiracy, by the way. Um, but uh, just to point out too, like I know this, like this seems very academic, but it, it really does impact the way people have to live their lives. So yep. I was thinking, like if if I had a job change and had to move today, and had to sell my house and then get another loan um, at the rate at the interest rate today, like yeah. I refinance my house in 2020, um, and I have a great. Uh, well, I have a great rate. Um, and I was looking and it's something like your monthly payments are almost double what yes. they would be um, yeah. if you had got the same loan in 2020, yeah. um, which is crazy. And yeah. it's you're, you're so spot on because it was very academic for me. Uh, I, I graduated high school in 89. The 70s is the last time we've felt it as real people. So it was really an academic exercise for me to get my PhD, become a professor. And I'm talking about this stuff we just talked mm -hmm. about on this podcast for 20 plus years. Uh, but for the average person, it's like, it doesn't pertain to me. I don't, who cares what's going on? And the point is somebody needs to care because that's why we got 9% inflation now. And now all of a sudden it is real relevant. And I hope there is a resurgence yeah, so of people uh, caring more about it. That, that's the other aspect. So one is the, the, the rates reflect what the broader trend is, which is that prices are up. And so one of the big, you know, comments right now is, well, 
the money supply didn't actually increase the prices because the money supply just sat in the banks, right? So this is kind of the rebuttal to uh, the claim that the Federal Reserve created inflation. But again, I just went through the evidence. The money the money didn't sit in the banks, right? Not during the pandemic, at least. It circulated around three times rate, all that stuff. Uh, so it's it's the your rates that you pay on things are influenced by this and all the prices in the economy. So the fact that everything's more expensive right now, this is a result of monetary policy. That doesn't mean 100% of the inflation is caused by monetary policy, uh, but I'd say it's reasonable to expect a pretty significant amount. People have tried to do different studies on this and try to figure out how much. Uh, I think the lowest bar I've seen is like a third of the inflation right now, which still would be, you know, uh, a third of 8% or whatever is a little over 2%. Our normal inflation rate uh, is around 2%. So if the Federal Reserve by itself just added all of our inflation, you know, all of our normal inflation to the current rate, that's pretty significant. And just to build on what I was saying about like, if I had to move today, like it's tempting for me to pat myself on the back and say, uh, well, you're so smart, you refinanced in 2020. Um, and I guess, <laughs> you know, since you're smart, you get the benefit of that, right? But no, that's not. I refinanced in 2020 because I was lucky and I was able to do it then. If my job circumstances forced me to move today, which is what happens to a lot of people and why a lot of people move, you know, they don't have that opportunity. So yeah. it's a kind of moral luck that we are imposing these costs on people who, through no fault of their own, um, are changing jobs right now. Um, yeah, for sure. All right. Well, this has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Hopefully you got a little more inflation and monetary policy savviness out of this one. Uh, if you think you've got some friends or family that might enjoy it too, please forward it along to them. Five-star rating helps other people find us. We also have a Gorton Institute donate button on our website. If you uh, Google Gorton Institute and it'll bring you to our webpage, scroll down and there's a little donate button if you'd like to support us on this and all the other activities we do. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.